Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well done, and Thank you for uncovering Whitehall Sources, your new insider podcast on politics, brought to you in association with The Resident, hotels with excellent rooms in exceptional locations and where thoughtful teams deliver heartfelt hospitality. A bit like number 10, but with The Resident, evening drinks are from Justerinian Brooks. They don't get wheeled up a road to you in a suitcase. Thanks to The Resident, your favourite podcast starts now. Mr. Speaker, I appointed the independent advisor to investigate this matter fully. He, he has set out his findings in detail over the weekend, and on receipt of those findings, I took action. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. We are back. It's Thursday. It is the 2nd of February, which means it's 100 days of Rishi Sunak being Prime Minister. More on that to come in the company of the brilliant Kirsty Buchanan. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning to you. Hello. And the, and the also, and the also <laughs> the brilliant Frankie Leach. Frankie Leach. Who has a lovely cat. Hello, cat. <laughs> He's got this new thing where, to get attention, he climbs onto the dining room table and kicks things off and then plays with them. We've all been there, Frankie, believe me. So, uh, hello. Hi. Uh, Frankie used to advise Jeremy Corbyn and Kirsty used to advise Theresa May when she was the Prime Minister. I just want to, as we get started, just in the interest of full disclosure, let you know that I am currently queuing for tickets for Beyonce. Um, are you? Yes. Uh, this is a virtual queue, of course. There are 97,399 people ahead of me in the queue. So I just wanted you to know that I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on that as we progress through today. Uh, since we last spoke, Nadim Zahawi has been fired as Conservative Party chairman. Uh, much to his disgust, it would appear. Of course, last week we were focusing on political capital and the fact that Nadim Zahawi was really spending quite a lot of it on behalf of the Prime Minister. So he's gone. Um... Attention has turned to Dominic Rabb at this point, who faces a number of allegations of misconduct and bullying, which he denies. Uh, but we'll see how that unfolds over the course of the next few days, of course. Today, though, as I say, is the 2nd of February. It is 100 days since Rishi Sunak took over as Prime Minister. So you can insert your own Liz Truss longevity-related joke here. That's fine. Uh, for a special episode today, though, we're going to do our favourite Stop It 
and roll it. Uh, the last time we did this was when Rishi Sunak became the Prime Minister, so I think it's a good time to resurrect this. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Make sure you follow and subscribe so you never miss another episode ever again. You can get in touch with your own thoughts on Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister 100 days in. Email hello at whitehallsources.com. And of course, you can join our mailing list as well. We'd love to have you on the mailing list. Uh, please go to whitehallsources.com forward slash mailing list to sign up. Uh, some new joiners just in the last couple of days. Uh, Mario, hello uh, to you. Also, Jake, uh, hello to Jake. Welcome to the mailing list. Uh, Sarah, Louisa, Mason have also joined and Scott as well. Hello, Scott. Uh, thank you for joining the mailing list. For a shout out next week, join it now. Go to whitehallsources.com forward slash mailing list. Right, so stop it and roll it for those who are new among us. We're going to play Rishi Sunak's first speech as Prime Minister, which set out really what he was going to do, what his ambitions were, what he was trying to achieve. And at any point, any of us can stop it. We will analyse it. We will scrutinise it. We will contextualise it. We might even empathise with it. And we'll assess how well Rishi Sunak has done in his first hundred days. Are we rearing to go? Yay. Of course. <laughs> Right, good. Once more with feeling, Once right? more with feeling, exactly. <laughs> uh, second to none, second to none analysis, etc. comes next. Right, over to Rishi Sunak. Good morning. I've just been to Buckingham Palace and accepted His Majesty the King's invitation to form a government in his name. It is only right to explain why I'm standing here as your new Prime Minister. Right now, our country is facing a profound economic crisis. The aftermath of COVID still lingers. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets Stop. and supply chains <laughs> the world over. Here we go, Frankie. Well. I mean, it wouldn't be right to hear him speaking about a destabilised energy market without bringing to attention the news this morning that Shell, one of the biggest oil companies in the world, has announced nearly £40 billion, pounds, sorry, $40 billion worth even, of profits. That's their annual profit return. For me, it's one of those things where we've spoken a lot about getting the government to put in a windfall tax and Rishi Sunak kind of came out slightly with teeth I think in this speech about how to you know get back some of that money in terms of the energy rebates that we saw as well in his first hundred days but I think that announcement this morning for me shows that we need harder action on how we tax these companies and the fact that they announced today Shell that they were going to be immediately starting to buy back shares is a concern for me because again that's you know lining the pockets of shareholders whilst ordinary members of the public are paying through the nose for their energy bills. There is a really interesting conundrum I suppose in all of that isn't there and it's the age-old argument about how much do you intervene in a private company who's making a profit which is what it exists to do and how much you're supposed to kind of almost punish them for that. There was an interesting stat around the profits and what you mentioned about dividends and share share related purchases and whatnot uh, that actually that, the total amount of that expenditure, will exceed investment in green projects, for example, which I think is quite an interesting one to, to consider as well. Um, I suppose in the context of Rishi Sunak and 100 Days, what strikes me is how many of these priorities have not really shifted that much, actually. So what he highlighted in, the, in those opening sentences 
that the profound economic crisis, Covid still lingers, and Putin's war in Ukraine. They're all still there. They haven't moved that much. Yeah, and to be fair, you wouldn't expect it to be otherwise, right? You, won't, you wouldn't expect sort of profound economic and political crises to lift and shift in 100 days. What is worth noting, of course, is that actually Sunak's government has produced not one but two windfall taxes on the energy companies, which have helped fund the energy price guarantee, which has seen average household bills pegged to £2,500 this winter, which is a significant kind of benefit for people facing extraordinary cost of living crisis. But, you know, I think the wider context is, you know, whoever was going to be the prime minister, whatever they inherited, was going to sort of smash really heavy headwinds against the government, no matter what it tries to do, because quite a lot of what a government is facing at the moment is outside of a kind of domestic, you know, UK administration's ability to control. So there are profound economic crises. We are still labouring under the, you know, the massive debts that we racked up under COVID. We are still facing, sadly, the Putin's horrendous war in Ukraine. I think 23rd of February is the year anniversary of that. That's sort of two black swan events kind of back to back with each other, if you like. And no one should sort of ever forget just how profound and unprecedented those events are. And the fact that the tailwinds of those are going to last for years and years and years, not be resolved in months. Speaking of profound and unprecedented events, let's roll it. I want to pay tribute to my predecessor, Liz Truss. She was not wrong. (laughs) To want to improve why? The- <laughs> I mean, in hindsight, it. sorry, it's nothing quite, more profound. It's, why? No, I get you, and it's quite notable, isn't it, that he goes on here to say she was not wrong to want to improve growth in this country. Let's have a listen because let's talk about growth after this. This country, it is a noble aim, and I admired her restlessness to create change. But some mistakes were made. Stop. Let's stop it there. Yeah, come on, Kirsty. So I think what is interesting in the gap between the 100 days when he first delivered that speech and where we are now, what's, what is beginning to happen in those 100 days is Liz Truss's self-imposed perder seems to be lifting. And in the space of three short months, we've gone from her sort of unceremoniously being dumped from Downing Street to her beginning to make, and her acolytes, beginning to make the argument again about... Well, actually, she wasn't wrong in her prescription of what was needed for the country. She might have delivered it in a cack-handed way, but her ambitions for the country were right. So you're beginning to see around Liz Truss this kind of pro-tax-cutter caucus of the Conservative Party becoming louder and louder again. And I think as we run up to the March the 15th budget, you will expect that to get louder still. Mm, that's a really interesting point, actually, that, that kind of resurgence of Trussonomics in the background and, and yeah, restlessness, exactly. Um, I wonder what will become of Liz Truss in the next few weeks. Uh, right, let's roll it. Not born of ill will or bad intentions. Quite the opposite, in fact but mistakes nonetheless. And I have been elected as leader of my party and your prime minister in part to fix them. Stop. And that- This this was the primary uh, uh, political priority for Rishi Sunak when he came in was to uh, stabilize the markets and reassure the markets. And 
Um, I, I don't know if you can remember, Callum, but uh, the, the, we declared the sort of Thursday that the, the chance of the new Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, went and did a broadcast round. We declared it to be the death of trussonomics. <laughs> yes. um, and if the central primary purpose, the immediate purpose of Rishi Sunak's was to stabilise the markets, then I think that is a big tick for the government. We saw under Trussonomics and her restlessness the damage that they inflicted on the markets and therefore the damage that inflicted uh, in terms of people's mortgages when fixed-term mortgages came to an end and they were looking at six, £700 a month extra on their bills. And obviously we have an interest rate rise decision today again, which is going to have real impact on millions of homeowners. So, you know, th- let's not underestimate the importance of stabilising the market. And it is... A fundamental point. I've heard over and over again in the last couple of weeks people say of Rishi Sunak's five priorities about one of them being about uh, halving inflation. Well, inflation's going to drop anyway. The government doesn't need to do anything. Well, that's, you know, in some senses that's true, but that is a consequence of stable markets and the markets having trust in a competent government. So let's not underestimate the importance of that. I think as well, when you talk about that that period of transition from trust to Sunak, now that we are 100 days out from it, I just think back to the, just the feeling of sort of disarray and confusion and, and sort of havoc that was going on. And that's not necessarily a, a sort of political policy point, but just that feeling of, of, of uncertainty and almost real kind of breathlessness and commotion, disruption that had been caused in such a short time that nobody quite knew how to handle it. And I, I think objectively it is fair to say that it does feel calmer now. Oh, yeah, it was like living in the worst kind of fever yeah, dream, exactly. right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. It was just, it was about as low as I think as politics can possibly get um, without people just chucking up their sticks and giving up with it completely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, stable government, such as it is, I mean, you can criticise, the you know, the weakness of Rishi Sunak in terms of his ability to manage his own party, but... Let's look at the fundamentals again. The fundamentals haven't changed. We, you know, we still have a profound economic crisis. We still have a profound, you know, political uh, crisis with a with a war on, you know, on the on the doorstep of Europe. And we still have a Conservative Party, which was told by Rishi Sunak's age almost on day one, unite or die, and seems hell bent on 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 not heeding that. So, you know, all the fundamentals that sit underneath this haven't really changed. And on top of this, he's managed to kind of stabilise the ship, but it's it's trying to chart very slowly through very... Here comes one of my analogies, sorry. <laughs> it's trying to chart a very kind of careful course through incredibly choppy waters. Frankie, would you give Rishi Sunak points for, for calming things down, for sort of restoring some sense of <laughs> sense? I definitely think that Rishi Sunak has calmed things down for the Conservative Party from kind of an outside perspective looking in. But I think Kirsty's right that clearly those rifts between the different factions of the Conservative Party are very much alive and kicking. And I think if we look back to how many current sitting MPs have decided they're not standing again, that enough in itself is going to rock the boat. We'll see new selections for the Conservative Party. And it will be interesting to see what kind of, you know, prospective candidates Rishi Sunak's Conservative Party wants to put forward. Rishi Sunak represents a particular brand of conservative politics, which is, you know, it's quite sort of soft and sensible. I think they're quite hard on things, but the outward projection is is quite nice, I would say. 
So it will be interesting to see. It's whether... soft and sensible <laughs> than you, strong and stable. <laughs> I, I guess it sounds quite similar, but you, you see what I'm getting at. Like he kind of gives off the kind of nice guy approach. And I think it will be interesting to see whether the rest of the Conservative Party falls in line with that, because so far they haven't. More on that to come, I think, as we continue to listen to Rishi Sunak. This is his first speech as Prime Minister. We're stopping it. We're rolling it. A hundred days on. How's he doing? Back to it. That work begins immediately. I will place economic stability and confidence at the heart of this government's agenda. This will mean difficult decisions to come. But you saw me during COVID doing everything I could to protect people and businesses with schemes like furlough. Go on, Kirsty. Okay. So if I have kind of one big criticism of the Sunak government at the moment, right, is actually born out of this point about furlough. You know, this was the man who, together with the team, which is largely now in Downing Street, created almost overnight an incredible support package, a multi-billion pound support package, which quite literally kind of took our economy from one side of a riverbank and a raging torrent of a pandemic, here comes another analogy, sorry, (laughs) built a ginormous multi-billion pound bridge and took the whole of Britain over to the other side and landed it by and large safely. Was it perfect? No, the scheme wasn't. But my Christ, the economic damage that would have flowed had they not come up with that. To come up with something that comprehensive, that kind of think outside the box, that profound. So I know that when when people talk about Rishi, they say he's a technocrat, he's a decent guy, he's a technocrat, he's managerial. I know that he and his team are capable of thinking big and bold because I've seen them do it before with furlough, right? So I know that they can create a vision thing. My biggest criticism at the moment, what we've got, it is born out of the fact that you've got a very kind of destabilised, factional, ferrets with flick knife kind of Tory party to try and govern at the moment. I I, I get all that. (laughs) Ferrets with a flick knife. (laughs) Yeah, ferrets in a sack with a bunch of flick knives. Ferrets in a sack didn't seem to be doing it anymore for me in the Tory party. I think they all now have flick knives against each other. So, So determined are they not to unite but to die. You know, so I so I get I get the need for you know party management caution, but you know there comes a point, and again with another tedious analogy, you know when like a football team is three 0 down and you're twenty minutes from uh, the final whistle, and sometimes you see a manager just go right, well let's just pack it with a load of attacking players because we've got nothing to lose, right? Let's say the Tory party is that now, and what we've got at the moment is you know, mapped out presumably by focus groups. We've got five people's priority pledges, right, which is, uh, see if I can remember them, halving inflation, speeding growth, cutting the uh, debt, cutting the NHS waiting lists and ending small boats or doing something with small boats in any event. Right, so fine, those are people's priorities. In the face of what we all see about kind of the broad dysfunctionality of this country, of every country, it's not unique to Britain, but the dysfunctionality of this country born out of supply-side crisis and inflation post-pandemic. 
this all feels a bit small for me. Where is the vision thing? Where is the boldness? Where is the, if we do all this, here are our sunny uplands, and this is what it looks like. And when you look at Keir Starmer, you're beginning to see a flesh-out story of uh, economic and democratic renewal, so a widespread story of devolution, a new wave of devolution, and his green, clean industrial revolution. I don't feel the sense of that bold vision yet from Sunak. And being able to do the day-to-day in a careful way is not the same thing as not setting out a broad, hopeful vision for the horizon. And that, for me, is the big thing lacking at the moment in this government. I always say this, and I sound a bit like a broken record, but whenever we mention furlough, I think it's important to point out that actually furlough originally started off... Um, in the Labour administration that I was part of, it was John McDonnell working with the unions, mainly the TUC, who were pushing for something like a furlough scheme. And what I'm told is that Rishi Sunak had to be brought round and persuaded to the idea of furlough. Obviously, he did go for it in the end, but important to note that that was an idea that originated from the Labour Party administration at that time. Are you giving Labour some credit, Kirsty? I'm not in a in a position to challenge that at the moment. I don't. I, I'm not, not not being in government at the time. I can't I can't speak to the sequential birth of of furlough. But Fair. I'm reminded that success has many fathers. Right. <laughs> Very good. Uh, right. As we continue to assess Rishi Sunak's first hundred days, we're basically grading him based on his first speech as prime minister those hundred days ago in Downing Street. So let's roll it. There are always limits more so now than ever. But I promise you this, I will bring that same compassion to the challenges we face today. The government I lead will not leave the next generation, your children and grandchildren, with a debt to settle that we were too weak to pay ourselves. Stop. Stop. Is there evidence of that, do we think, Frankie? I don't think so. I think one of the things that we've seen recently is you've got people, mainly women, complaining that they feel that they can't even afford to have children at the moment because of the rising cost of childcare. We've seen the continued promises around pensions, but obviously it's usually the younger generation who, through things like inflation and general rising cost of living, mean that they have less money in their pocket right at the start, which means they're less likely to purchase a house. So I think for the future generation, the Conservative Party's got a mammoth task to try and convince them that they're on their side. I mean, obviously, I'm not a Conservative voter, but I don't feel like this Conservative government is doing anything to be able to make my finances any better. I mean, there's lots of policy papers that are out and milling around, putting that really scary thought out, which is that we're going to have a generation of pensioners who are renting their homes potentially in the future, because such is the issue that people can't afford to buy their homes and also we've got this population who certainly in cities like London feel like they can't afford to have children. So I don't know how you feel about that, Kirsty, but I think Rishi Sunak's got a massive task to be able to convince younger, and when I say younger, I'm talking about the under 40s here, really, um, to vote Conservative at the next election. Yeah, I was reading some research uh, the other day about the demographic split in the Conservative Party. It was a, if anybody can dig it out, it's a Sam Friedman piece about the legacy of Thatcherism, and it's a it's a fascinating piece. 
And I'm reminded that, you know, for the under 50s, I think the Tories are polling in the kind of mid-teens and you have to get into the kind of over 65s, if you like, to have that kind of balance tipped in favour of the Conservative Party. They're even trailing behind in the sort of, you know, 40 to sort of 60-year-old kind of age bracket. There is a moral point that Rishi's trying to make here, but there is a there is a moral argument about debt reduction. It's the same moral argument that George Osborne made in Austerity. It's, you know, debt reduction as compassionate conservatism. I entirely uh, understand and sympathise up to a point with the, with the counter-argument to that, that austerity as a compassionate argument, the reality of how that plays out on the ground means that, you know, public sector workers right now are out on sort of mass strike, if you like, because their wages are falling behind private sector workers. The average private sector pay increase this year is 7%. The average public sector workers' pay increase is 3%. That's just a fact. These are all kind of sliding trade-offs and choices in life, but, but he is trying to make a moral and compassionate argument about debt reduction in as much as if you continue to have high debts as a government, you are paying massive massive interest on those massive interest that is money that is not going into the health service that is money that is not going into schools that is money that is not going into fighting crime and more importantly you know why should the next generation pick up the tab for this one so there is a moral argument for it but i accept that there are real world consequences of a government prioritizing debt reduction duncan robinson um in the economist said on average, someone born in 1956 will pay about £940,000 in tax throughout their life, but they're forecast to receive state benefits amounting to about £1.2 million or 291000 net. But someone born in 1996 will enjoy half of that figure. A fresh-faced 27-year-old today will receive barely more than someone born in 1931, about a decade before the term welfare state was first popularised. I mean, it's, it is stark, isn't it? And it's going to be really difficult, I think, for both parties to communicate a policy platform that helps pensioners who clearly are in need um, and are suffering, uh, particularly when it comes to not being able to afford to heat their homes. We've got this very precarious middle class, as it were, that might be educated up to their eyeballs with you know, degrees and masters, but are really struggling in terms of the economy. Let's go back to Rishi Sunak because this next passage of his speech in Downing Street 100 days ago is one that is probably is probably the most quoted bit of his speech. Let's roll it. I will unite our country not with words but with action. I will work day in and day out to deliver for you. This government will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Stop. Trust. That it is the most quoted bit, isn't it? Integrity, professionalism and accountability. Kirsty Buchanan, over to you. Well, we said at the time when we uh, dissected the speech the first time round, I don't want to toot Whitehall Sources' horn, but <laughs> I'm going do. to. <laughs> toot. Um, we said at the time that he was making a right hostage for fortune with that pledge, um, and thus it has come to pass. Mm. We have seen blowback over Suella Braverman being reappointed to the Home Secretary's post six days after she was found to have breached the ministerial code. We've seen 
Gavin Williamson having to stand down because of allegations of bullying. We've seen Zahawi sacked because of uh, his tax affairs, which he still maintains he has done nothing wrong, but was found by the new ethics advisor to have had serious breaches of the ministerial code. And now, obviously, the media are beginning to try to pick off the Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary Dom Rabb uh, amid allegations of bullying in three different departments. So, I mean, look, it's 100% right, given the the corrosion of trust that happened under Boris Johnson's regime for any incoming Prime Minister to identify, quite rightly, the need to restore trust. But increasingly the debate is, is this the Conservatives of 92 or is this Conservatives of 97? In other words, are they going to squeak another victory uh, or are they going to get swept away in a Labour landslide? And I think one of the things that definitely feels 92 for me about this is these words are going to be used by the media over and over again to just pick off more and more people, more and more ministers within the Cabinet that fall, you know, very far behind or a little bit behind you know, quite exacting standards. And we said last week, it's 100% right that ministers should be held to a very, very high standard in public office. There are seven principles of, of, of public life under Nolan. It's just set a narrative for the for, for, for media now, which is to continue to go through the, the government and continue to view it through this prism of these three words. Yeah. There is an argument that Rishi Sunak has acted quite decisively in terms of all of these things is that, you know, last week we spoke about Nadim Zahawi and I was very clear that I thought that Nadim Zahawi needed to be sacked and it was on the Sunday that he was sacked. And, I mean, the letter criticised that Rishi Sunak sent, but he did act decisively, which is that Nadim Zahawi was sacked. But it's interesting to hear the rumblings about they still haven't managed to find a replacement for the Conservative Party chair. And I wonder if there's a story behind that in who they're looking for, what kind of message will it send out about the new chair when they are announced? And will they be a ally or will they offer it to someone from the trust camp as a sort of olive branch? I don't know. It is admirable to aim for accountability, integrity and professionalism. That That is what we should demand and expect. But why is it that ministers can never fulfil that? What and I, I probably come back to the the Gus O'Donnell defence of Simon Case here. In that, in terms of Simon Case enforcing the rules, uh, Gus O'Donnell basically said to paraphrase, but his point was, it's not really Simon Case's fault. He's dealing with a bad batch of ministers, and I'm just quite struck by that as a thought. Why do we not have better people? <laughs> wow! If I could answer that one, uh, wouldn't we all live in a happy and jolly place? Look, you know, politicians are human, um, and uh, to err is human. To forgive is not in the is divine, but not not part and parcel of of modern media. So, human beings are fallible. The ministerial code and the seven principles of public life are extremely rigorous. Uh, I think. What you've done, though, is set a narrative. Mm. And all governments are seen through the prism of a narrative. All of Blair's administration was seen through the prism of his relationship with Gordon Brown. All Boris Johnson's administration was seen through the prism of Boris Johnson, if you like, and his own uh, particular human failings and foibles. Uh, This government will be seen entirely through these three words because, obviously, you know, 
that is the standard that Rishi set for his own government. And look, and 100% rightly so, you know, trust in the government had absolutely plummeted under Boris Johnson. There was no way an incoming prime minister couldn't make this pledge. But it is the narrative that the government, that the media have now fixated on. Mm. And between now and an election in 24, all ministers will be held to this. And, I, and as for the chairman, look... You know, I think it's, the delay is partly because they're trying to due diligence people up to their eyeballs because they cannot afford to make another mistake. Uh, but also because nobody really wants it right now because you've got the May local elections coming and whoever gets that job is aware that they're going to be in for a right old uh, spanking. Uh, and it's a bit of a thankless task right now. Mm. Frankie, is there room here for Keir Starmer to, to muscle in? If this is the narrative, if this is the prism through which we are viewing Sunak's government, integrity, professionalism, accountability, that surely leaves some ground open for Keir Starmer to muscle in and say, well, hang on, if that's how, if that's what everybody's thinking about and focusing on, then this is where Labour can carve out a bit of space. I think where they're trying to carve out space is about being the sensible economic alternative. The problem is, I think, if they get too heavy into the weave of integrity, it then kind of sets them up on a a pedestal that they may well fall from in the future. So it's a risky business going hard on integrity. Yeah, they'd be hostages to fortune as well. Yeah, exactly. And we don't know what the whips might be holding about some party MPs. You never know. A story could come out at any moment about somebody's bad conduct. So it is a risky business unless, like Kirsty says, you are completely lock and key across everything that your MPs are doing and no, there are no stories, mm. you know, about to bite you. It's weak, it's weak ground for Keir Starmer anyway because of his support for Corbyn under the rise and rise of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. If that was a if that was a door he opened, then it's an easy one for any Conservative MP to just walk and smack him right back again with the anti-Semitism charge that he stood silent and did nothing while anti-Semitism ran right through the Labour Party. So it's not one that they can go on. But weirdly, I have the kind of uh, uh, opposite criticism of, of, of Starmer's opposition at the moment. If Rishi Sunak's government is lacking the big kind of bold vision thing and Starmer is beginning to flesh out his kind of big bold vision... What I really wish the opposition would do, just entirely from a communications point of view, is find a couple of attack lines and stick with them. Mm. You know, they just, every week, we was, let's try on this for size or let's try on, oh, he, Rishi's weak or it's one rule for them and another for the rest of us. You know, if you want cut through with a message, you've got to have consistency of messaging. So the big, bold vision thing I can see taking shape and rising out of the clouds, but... If you're going to go on an attack line, just just stick with it. You know, make it simple, make it clear cut, and make it consistent. And just on the uh, the prism, then, what happens to the prism of integrity, professionalism, and accountability in the case of Dominic Rab, where he is denying wrongdoing? The investigation continues. The criticism is mounting of him. There are suggestions this week that he might just resign um, his post in sort of anticipation of the the report. I just wonder how fundamental Dominic Rabb is to that prism, Kirsty. Uh, well, it's, an, it's another brick on the wall, isn't it? Uh, I, look, I, my own personal view, and here I am making myself a hostage to fortune, is <laughs> I would be surprised if Dominic Rabb resigned. Partly, it's not really in the nature of the guy, and also uh, friends of, aides of, allies of Dominic Rabb um, 
have very clearly been pushing the line that, you know, a man asking for exacting standards is not the same thing uh, as a man who is a bully. So there is clearly a kind of defence line that they're carving out there. We'll have to wait and see... Uh, how the inquiry pans out, I think. But I think if the if the inquiry pans out in the same way of, of determining that he has breached the ministerial code, then, you know, once you've set the bar like that for Zahawi, then then every, everything else flows from that, right? Mm. A breach of the ministerial yeah. code is a breach of the ministerial code. And if the consequence of that is sacking uh, for Zahawi, then regardless of the circumstances that sit underneath it, the consequence would be the same, presumably, for any minister. More to come from Rishi Sunak's first speech and first hundred days in office. We're using his speech to assess how he's done. What has he achieved? Where has he been found wanting so far? It is only 100 days, but at the same time, it has huge political significance. Your assessment is always welcome. Email us, hello at whitehallsources.com. Please, 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 if you're enjoying what you're hearing, and I bet you are because you're 35 minutes into it already, since you're enjoying what you're hearing, Make sure you follow the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, be part of Whitehall Sources. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, hotels that are your home away from home in London and Liverpool. Resident hotels provide the perfect base to explore the city. Maybe you stayed in the resident in Liverpool for the Labour Party conference just a few weeks ago, or you may be looking for a base from which to explore London. You might even be on a political pilgrimage to Whitehall and Downing Street, inspired by this very podcast. Whitehall Sources brings you the inside info on politics. The resident brings you insider info on your chosen destination. Go to residenthotels.com to become a member and secure exclusive rates and the resident teams will support you throughout your stay. Let's go on and let's roll it once more. ...is earned and I will earn yours. I will always be grateful to Boris Johnson for his incredible achievements as Prime Minister. And I treasure his warmth and generosity of spirit. Stop. <laughs> yeah, the other... <laughs> I, wonder how much he, I wonder how much he treasures his warmth and generosity of spirit now, and every time he turns on the media, up pops <laughs> Boris Johnson. So... Yeah. If uh, Liz Truss has decided that her self-imposed purder is coming to an end, I think Boris's gift for making mischief in the background uh, is very much coming coming to its own again. So, you know, I, I mean, I, I saw him popping up the other day again to criticise the West for, uh, and in particular this government, for not providing air cover, I think, for Ukraine. Now, I mean, I'm yeah. fairly sure that Boris Johnson, when he was Prime Minister, ruled out air cover for Ukraine on the grounds of the fact that it could spark a third world war. <laughs> so it's easy to sit there in your, in your back seat driving and, and shout at the driver, but it's not particularly helpful. And, you know, you're already beginning to see the far-flung reaches of the cult of Boris Johnson again saying, oh, well, you know, if Rishi's doesn't make it in the May elections, and you know, then, then Boris should come back. You know, there is, for me, no world where the Conservative Party's relationship with the electorate is in any way improved by Boris Johnson and let's just see what happens when he ends up in the front of the Privileges Committee 
uh, and where yeah. that leaves it. But you know, he's he's definitely he's never been one to respect uh, and you know have a self-imposed perder on a, on another prime minister, and he's every much a thorn in Rishi Sunak's side now as he was for David Cameron, for Theresa May, and will continue to be so, I suspect. I also think that Boris Johnson's approach to his kind of post-Prime Minister foray into global politics is quite concerning because he's using his position, I suppose, his credibility that he built up during the Ukrainian war as a way to really shift the dial in terms of the UK government's now response to Ukraine. I mean, he went to America and it almost seemed like, you know, he'd gone to Ukraine, he'd met with Zelensky, he then went to America and was immediately doing broadcast about, as you said, as he's sending more military aid to Ukraine. And it almost looks like he was also trying to send that message to America as well. You know, Zelensky did a speech a couple of months ago in the White House where he very so unsubtly really said, you know, it's great how much you've given, we need more. And I was listening to what Boris Johnson was saying on the World Service when he was in America. He was almost kind of saying the same thing. Um, personally, I don't really feel like Boris Johnson has the qualifications to get involved in the kind of elder statesman entering into global politics at that level, particularly over something so sensitive as the Ukraine war. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but if I was Rishi Sunak, I'd be worried about him saying something a bit off kilter, which then would heavily impact how the UK government has to respond in the global politics space. Let's get back to Rishi Sunak and we'll roll it. And I know he would agree that the mandate my party earned in 2019 is not the sole property of any one individual. It is a mandate that belongs to and unites all of us. And the heart of that mandate is our manifesto. Let's just stop it, just for a brief consideration on Rishi Sunak's electoral uh, prospect, I suppose. We've got the local elections that we've mentioned already in the next couple of months. We'll have a general election in the next, what, 18 months or so, probably, uh, we expect... And at the moment, he's, he's well, as we would say where I'm from, he's cruising for a bruising. Um, he, <laughs> he, the polling indicates that Labour are way ahead. It's, they've been pretty consistently ahead for quite some time now. Um, and so while he may have a mandate from the 2019 election, it feels at this point, Kirsten, and again, this is a narrative thing, but it feels at this point like that mandate might be about to go up in smoke. Yeah, the um, ship has been stabilised, but it's still sinking. Um, I think is the is the short form version of that, which comes back to this point about you know Isaac Levido, the election guru du jour, uh, has been mapping out this landing strip. This is the new thing in politics. Everyone has a landing strip, a landing strip for uh, general election victory. And I I talked to quite a few pollsters who who still think because the electorate are not sold on Keir Starmer, that there is still a thin kind of 92 victory to be had there with all that that entails. But the more the Conservative Party continue to behave like a group of ill-disciplined toddlers on a rampage or look out for their own interests rather than 
the collective interests of the Conservative Party, the greater the chances every day that pass that the public just want shot of the lot of them. Not because they don't think that Rishi Sunak is a good and decent man trying to do the best with a very sticky wicket, but because they've just had an absolute gutful of the behaviour of the Conservative Party. And, you know, as we've said before, you know, at the fag end of a government, you've got 119 ministers on the back benches, mm. people worried about their own, you know, constituency chances that think, well, actually, if, if cutting myself adrift from the government line improves my chances of holding on to my seat, then so be it, et cetera, et cetera. And people with the careers in the rearview mirror, et cetera. There's a lot of individual interest there being put out on display. But, you know, you either unite together and survive or you face a real drubbing, it would look like, by the polls because people don't vote for ill-disciplined, disunited parties. Mm. If you can't govern yourselves and get a grip of yourselves, how on earth can you be expected to govern and grip the needs of, of your country? Now, I want to play this next section of the speech and then ask you a question, Frankie. So this is uh, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, talking about the Conservative manifesto on which he was elected. Let's roll it. I will deliver on its promise a stronger NHS, better schools, safer streets, control of our borders, protecting our environment, supporting our armed forces, levelling up and building an economy that embraces the opportunities of Brexit, where businesses invest, innovate and create jobs. Stop it. Are they the same priorities as Sir Keir Starmer and the Labour Party? I would say it's hard to ascertain the differences between the two policy platforms. And I laughed inwardly when he said about improving the NHS and getting schools, I don't know what the phrase was, better, I suppose, um, given how massive the strike rally was yesterday in London that saw the NEU, the biggest education union, bring out, I think, 30,000 people to support them on their strike. Um, obviously, you've got NHS strikers as well. It doesn't seem like anything is getting better in that department. I also find it quite funny when he said about embracing the opportunities of Brexit, when there was a statistic that came out the other day from the IMF, which said that the UK is the only G7 economy projected to shrink in 2023 and you had lots of people out on broadcast not conservative party mps but you know people in the periphery saying that they felt like brexit was a massive you know cost to their businesses and feel like that is contributing to the shrinking of the uk economy so i think it would be important for the labor party to have those issues in their manifesto to say how they're going to improve those and i think if rishi sunak wants any kind of chance of winning the next election he needs to take that on board as well and i do always mention the issue of things like childcare because i think that it's one of those policy issues that we don't speak about much but it kind of is part of the economy which is that you know people need to be able to stay in their jobs they want to be able to stay in their jobs so they want to be able to have childcare to be able to send their children to so they can continue to do that and also many of them can't afford to stop working so for lots of women they have to kind of make this choice about whether it's economically feasible to have children particularly in big cities like london and i think the conservative party needs to present something for those people and again that's talking about those 
under 40s voters rather than people who are at their pension age because the statistics of you know for anyone if you're voting labor or conservative about what kind of future you're going to have is is not amazing and i think a policy platform from either of those parties needs to really tackle that and show what they're actually going to do to make that you know a possibility to have an ally to have a home to be able to have children to have an nhs that will look after you from cradle to grave because it feels like to me all of those things are now under threat yeah, um, <laughs> I'd settle for my schools being open with trains running at the moment, but um, <laughs> uh, frankly, and 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 actually to to, to agree uh, uh, a little bit, um, I've never understood in policy terms why housing and childcare are so little discussed and so low down the kind of political priority agenda. All roads in public policy lead back to childcare and housing for. The vast majority of people in this country, no matter where where you live, it shapes and affects everything. Um, and yet it's, you know, it's just so low down the agenda. It, it's extraordinary. Uh, I was going to pull up a little bit of that speech, which just to expand on my theme about Brand Rishi and the big vision thing. He says at the back end of that sentence that we've just stopped, invest, innovate and create jobs. Mm -hmm. Now... What we've seen in America is an absolute game changer in terms of the green industrial revolution. Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act will pump £297 billion, not dollars, pounds, into investment in green technologies and green jobs. The EU is currently falling over itself to meet and match that with some similar kind of interventionist uh, investment package to lure investors to EU because at the moment investors are all kind of falling over themselves to, to run over to the Atlantic to get a slice of that Biden pie. <laughs> there is a very brand rishy thing for me here which is about investment and innovation. What is the government's response to Biden's Inflation Reduction Act? We've seen Tony Danker at the CBI talk about this. It's become quite a a kind of seismic event in terms of the green industrial revolution. If we don't meet and match that kind of response with a kind of similar one over here and we and a similar one that will happen in the European Union, what will happen is that Britain will be left behind in the green industrial revolution. This is a very tight window. There is a massive, massive prize for Britain in terms of clean industrial revolution and the clean jobs that come with that we are a great country of innovation and of talent and of skill but we will left be left behind if we don't act quickly and with the march the 15th budget corporation tax will rise the super deduction which encourages investment in this in new technologies will go what will replace it something needs to replace it otherwise we'll be left in the slow lane of the industrial revolution this is where brand rishi can build on what is quintessentially kind of his shtick around technology and innovation and kind of Silicon Valley kind of Sunak. Yeah, and this is something the Labour Party, I think, is kind of dragging its heels on a little bit. I think I, I'm i definitely hearing about internal frustrations from, you know, Ed Miliband's team, who I think want to be pushing for a more progressive strategy around the green industrial revolution, but also harder reforms on things like energy companies we've got the ect which is the energy charter treaty which the uk is still a member of which sees you know big oil and gas companies able to sue countries in corporate courts which go outside of the civil court system so there are easy wins for the labor party in terms of policy commitments they can make about removing themselves from those corporate 
courts for example or saying you know we do need to try and put more heat pumps into council estates it's just little things like that that come across as a progressive party like you said Kirsty, that wants to be on the front foot about the green industrial revolution and brexit will be a, a huge part of this because the eu is pushing hard to be able to get that kind of green politics in place and you know the uk really does risk being left behind on that mm. and it brings me back to this conversation about Scottish independence, which is that, you know, Scotland is really relying on the oil economy that they have to be able to put up the money for their independence bid. And one of the things I think that Rishi Sunak's government can do is, you know, look at those options for renewable energy in Scotland, make sure that a transition for the Scottish economy, if it remains part of the UK, can be pushed around renewables rather, sorry, rather than fossil fuel. So it will be an interesting policy platform, to say the least, in the next election. And again, it brings it back to the priorities of the voters, which is that statistically speaking, younger voters care much more about climate change than older voters do. So they have to kind of make that playoff again. Are they going to put all of their eggs in the industrial revolution basket or are they going to kind of avoid that to go harder on things like the economy and having money in people's pockets now? Because, of course... The thing about a green industrial revolution and any kind of green policies is that they're expensive. Well, actually, offshore wind is the cheapest form of energy you can you can of have course, now. Yeah. Now, <laughs> you know, it requires from the government some upfront investment, and that's exactly yeah. what they did in offshore wind. And look where we are now. Offshore wind is the cheapest form of energy in Britain. It is a hundred percent secure and not reliant on you know volatile price imported kind of fuels. It is entirely renewable, and it employs and will by I think twenty thirty employ sixty thousand people in this country. We exactly. lead the world in offshore wind because the government invested in it from the ground up. That's the sort of level of price. It cuts your bills. It's reliable. It makes you in an energy independent. It creates tens of thousands of jobs. I mean, it's just a win-win. There is a race now, a global race. This is the biggest kind of gold rush we've seen since the Industrial Revolution. You know, we've seen Biden back it up to the hilt. The EU are scrambling for their response. We've got a, a budget coming up in March. We need to act on this now. We need to invest. Otherwise, we will be left in the slow lane. This advice yeah, exactly. for free on the Whitehall Sources <laughs> podcast... <laughs> <laughs> this is what you get from Kirsty and from Frankie every single week. Free advice, insight into how it works, what should work, what the strategy should be. Make sure you press follow, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You'll never miss an episode again. Now we've got about 90 seconds of Rishi Sunak's speech left. And spoiler alert, it's all quite sort of conclusive. It's kind of the, the final bit of the speech. So let's run this through and then we'll do a big picture overview grading of Rishi Sunak's 100 days in office. Let's roll it. I understand how difficult this moment is. After the billions of pounds it cost us to combat COVID, after all the dislocation that caused, in the midst of a terrible war that must be seen successfully to its conclusions, I fully appreciate how hard things are. And I understand too that I have work to do to restore trust after all that has happened. All I can say is that I am not daunted. I know the high office I have accepted and I hope to live up to its demands.
but when the opportunity to serve comes along, you cannot question the moment, only your willingness. So I stand here before you, ready to lead our country into the future, to put your needs above politics, to reach out and build a government that represents the very best traditions of my party. Together, we can achieve incredible things. We will create a future worthy of the sacrifices so many have made and fill tomorrow and every day thereafter with hope. Thank you. And with that, the Prime Minister began his time in office. He's been there for 100 days. Are you filled with hope, Frankie? What's your overall grade for Rishi Sunak on, on the various things we've talked about, on the economy, on energy and cost of living, uh, on accountability and standards, even the war in Ukraine as well? Where are we at here 100 days into Prime Minister Sunak? I think that... Rishi Sunak has been dealt a bad hand when it comes to the integrity of some of his MPs. And I think that, although I'm obviously extremely unhappy of the way they've acted, I think that Rishi Sunak on the whole has been decisive and has done the right thing and has set the bar for standards quite well um, with the Nadim Zahawi affair. And I think actually the Labour Party could probably do well to, to fall behind that. I'm not suggesting that they've got anybody that they need to do such. I think it's a good standard. Um, in terms of the economy, obviously, you know that I'm on the side of the trade unions and the strikers and don't think it's done enough to be able to work constructively or at least instruct his ministers to work constructively with the unions to be able to get a better deal. I think politically they've chosen a route of allowing the strikes to go on in order to, you know, damage as much as possible the public opinion of trade unions and strikers. I'm not a fan of the legislation that they've put through around restricting the right to strike in terms of things like minimum safety levels, etc. Um, let's see where we are with the economy in the next six months. But I think the real signifier of how the public feel about Rishi Sunak will be the May elections. And as you said, it does look like they are on course for a bruising. Kirsty, your big picture grading of, of Prime Minister Sunak. OK, a uh, couple of observations. One, that is by far and away the best speech he's done as Prime Minister. Yes, yeah. Um, it is full of, uh, you know, big picture vision thing. And it does set out a path towards hope. I note Riley that he he mentions in terms that this wouldn't be the choice of when he would become prime minister uh, because of all the troubles uh, and the you know the kind of toxic legacy he's inherited. But you know uh, politics is about timing, and sometimes you know you've got luck on your side, and sometimes you haven't. And there can be few prime ministers who've had a worse inheritance than Rishi Sunak has has had particularly in terms of public sector workers, particularly in terms of nurses at the moment, I'd want to say that has he yet come anywhere near building a society worthy of the sacrifices they made? No. Um, but, you know, we will wait and see how that plays out. Um, and I think, as I've argued before, I think there is a separate case about care and and, and nurses than there is perhaps for for some of the other striking workers. And I think... You know, overall, uh, you know, no one, I don't think, 
except the most churlish, would um, dispute his his own integrity, his own personal uh, drive to do right by the country, uh, to try and deliver on the manifesto of 2019. But everything, everything is working against him. His own party is, you know, ripped and riven by, by factions and is borderline ungovernable. You know, the economy is close to collapse, not just here, but, you know, we're facing a global recession. Uh, we are all still living under the shadow and the consequences of, you know, you know, the despotic actions of Putin in Ukraine and the war in Ukraine. So the headwinds are about as harsh as any prime minister has faced probably since Thatcher's inheritance in 79. Mm. Uh, will he survive this and the Conservative Party secure uh, an election next year? Look, I don't know. I'm not a soothsayer, but, you know, everything seems to be stacked against this at the moment, despite, despite Rishi Sunak's best endeavours. That is Whitehall Sources. It's a Stop It and Roll It special this week where we have graded Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's first 100 days based on that first speech that he gave on Downing Street as he took office all those many months ago, 100 days ago. Uh, thanks for being with us. If you enjoyed that, uh, then please subscribe. Please follow this podcast. We are here weekly to offer insight and analysis based on the experiences of Kirsty and Frankie during their time in Number 10 and the Office of the Leader of the Opposition, uh, respectively. Uh, join our mailing list as well. Go to whitehallsources.com slash mailing list. Drop us an email. Give us your feedback. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. It's lovely to have been with you this week. We will be back next week. So until then, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.